Most days on summer break during my middle school years, you wouldn't find me at home playing video games. Instead, I'd be at Travis and Tyler's house where, at the top of a stepladder, leading to a wobbly card table and a plywood floored room they'd constructed above their garage, was the perfect place to play role-playing games and board games. One of the favorites among my group of friends at the time was called Axis and Allies, five players on two teams. The Axis countries of Germany and Japan against the allies of the United States, United Kingdom, and USSR. The game is still around today, and from what I understand, it's changed a bit, but back when I first started playing it, well before that Settlers of Catan bumper sticker was just a glimmer in your car's eye, the idea of shelling out for a board game that unfolded to the size of a small coffee table and came with 300 plastic game pieces that took an entire day to punch out of their plastic trees, along with a 32-page instruction book, was fairly novel. The board took an hour for us to set up, and the game sometimes took days to play. We loved it. Playing as the United States felt patriotic and easier given their remove from the hornet's nest of the European theater. Playing as an Axis power country felt like a personal heel turn, and we delighted in our fleet deployments, bombing raids, and blitzkriegs. We played Axis and Allies over and over again for years, and it felt whoever played as Germany won every time. They had every advantage in the game. They started with the most weapons, gobbled up territory early in the game, and just made a mess of the map that took effortful, voice-cracking coordination by the other country's leaders to contain. By playing the game over and over again, I think we grasped the big picture and the main players of World War II, but we didn't have the details. For instance, in Axis and Allies, the location of today's film, Operation Amsterdam, was an area of the map simply called Western Europe, a square that started the game belonging to Germany. The countries and people whose resistance was vital in winning the war, but whose efforts were cut for time so that the game was less complex. And as much as the genre of turn-based board games tend to ignore them, it can feel like most war films don't bother with the stories of those countries whose sole purpose is to be the soil where the blood soaks underneath some other country's tank treads, with a home that must be granted to a soldier as they pass through, and their food, wine, and women for the taking. You know how in every movie set in New York it's said that New York is practically a character in the film? Well, there's an unnerving quality about Operation Amsterdam that feels akin to an apocalypse film in an empty Times Square. Every empty street you look, there should be people bicycling around, going from one cuckoo clock store to the next, in between stops at Stroopwafel vendors. It feels wrong. But you know what feels right? A heist movie. We've seen heist films bolted onto war films before on Friendly Fire, but not like this. We've got a group of spies in a beautiful place stealing diamonds. The twist is, they're not stealing to enrich themselves. They're stealing these industrial diamonds to keep out of the hands of the Germans. On those deserted windmill-shadowed streets, a game of Aryan cat and stoic mouse breaks out to the tune of a very unique musical instrument. And it's a game I think we would have enjoyed playing in that room over the garage at Travis and Tyler's. We're trying to beat the clock and the Germans. Every second counts. On today's Friendly Fire, Operation Amsterdam. Why? 
Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that's not worth much. It has flaws, and the setting is poor. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. Nice one, Ben. I thought this movie would be a comedy from that scene where uh, everyone's assembled on the boat and they're like observing the other boat go through the minefield. And I don't, I don't remember who the character was, but he's like, those guys are the lucky ones. And then, boom! <laughs> Their boat explodes. <laughs> that felt like our show in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. I felt like it was a comedy from it's a very early scene when the when the team is assembling in the upstairs office and uh-huh. uh, and the son John uh comes in the door and the narrator is like he's uh he's a diamond merchant's son and he's got a lust for life. We cut to the inside shot where the camera is pointed at the top of the stairs. Yeah. And the shot waits in real time as he climbs the staircase and it was long enough that I turned to my movie watching companion and said, what are we looking, what are we looking at right now? Like (laughs) it was, it was a very, very, very pregnant pause waiting for John to get to the top. That's so interesting that you called attention to that because I thought this film was one of the better films that cut on action over and over and over again. It did that. There were just a couple of things that seemed to happen where uh, that seemed to happen like in actual meat space time. Yeah. Uh, I was like, wow, he, th- he went in to go to the bathroom and we're just going to wait here until he gets back. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of several things that do sort of feel like this movie thought maybe it was kind of an action comedy or like had some idea about what comedy is, but not, but hadn't like fully articulated itself as, as such like yeah, shooting up the hurdy gurdy cart kind of feels like a, like wouldn't this be funny or like hey like we've got this bottle of brandy that we're going to for some reason go to great pains to get out of Amsterdam along with the sack full of 10 million pounds worth of diamonds the constant refrain of we came on a british destroyer i thought was was comedy like i thought yeah. that was a drinking game type of <laughs> dialogue why do they keep telling people that they say fifth column like like every Every three minutes throughout the film. And it's like, yeah, we get yeah. it. Fifth column. We get it. Fifth column. Yeah. <laughs> we know what it is. There is some concern that the Dutch troops may be loyal, in fact, to Germany and not Holland. Yes. Got it. Also, I felt like the Tony Britton uh, in the character of Major Dylan from the from the start of the film, he it's such a campy portrayal of like the 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 hard the hard kind of British operative in the always belted trench coat, yeah, that with two leather briefcases that he's like careful careful that 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 it it was like camp to the point of comedy just 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 to the edge of comedy. If they wanted to take it over the line, they should have had him sit down on a park bench with his two briefcases and then like look shiftily to the right and left and then swap the two briefcases <laughs> and then get up and carry them away. But but what but what we're noticing is all true except there was not a lick of actual comedy in this film. Yeah. It's a movie that has a very unusual structure which is that it is boring and kind of forgettable oh. at the beginning and then gets more and more interesting as it goes on. Like it, oh. like by the halfway point, it's like, oh, this is like a 
B minus C plus movie. And like, like if you could just have a movie that's as good as the end, it would be a, a pretty good movie, but it's got the beginning. So it's not. That's not how movies work, though. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, like, how many movies have we watched where the third act sucked and, and the first two acts were pretty awesome and you kind of forgive fair. the third act. That's true. But this movie had like a pretty awesome third act and pretty weak first and second. You want in the in the Al Gore parlance, the hockey stick effect to a, a film's tension, right? You want it going upwards. You want to put the diamonds in a lock box. How about the the need for you to accept uh, diamond merchants as as deserving of sympathy? <laughs> I, I think that, that, that that's the hard part of the whole first and second act is it's not just like that it's a pretty esoteric raid. Like we need these industrial diamonds. It's never no one even does gives us a one sentence explanation for how are industrial diamonds used in a way that it's going to affect the outcome of the war. The Nazis want the diamonds. Yeah. I think somebody says like it means it, it, they're used in the manufacture of like tanks and stuff, but I think that they needed to when they link up with the resistance, they they should have had a scene where the resistance was like, why the fuck are we going to help you knock over a diamond vault right now when our country is being invaded? And then they go, well, here's why. And explain that. If the Nazis get the diamonds, then X, then the Bismarck will defeat the, the, the McMillan or whatever. <laughs> We've got all these saw blades with, with dull tips. <laughs> Is that the suggestion? That's what the diamonds would be used for? Is for like the cutting of things? Yeah, yeah. they're 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 there to cut uh, mithril or whatever. You mm. don't realize, but a single panzer is worth all of Holland. Mm. <laughs> Stop! Come back! It's ostensibly a commando raid and a heist movie, except mm -hmm. yeah, the Germans haven't yet occupied Holland. So for the so we're there in the last three days of, or I'm sorry, Netherlands, not Holland. My bad. The last fourteen hours, right? Because like the they're like hearing the the explosions of the of the war get closer and closer over the course of the film. But what that means is that almost everyone they encounter, they immediately explain that they're on a commando raid. They say they came in on a destroyer though yeah. also. You got to you got to make sure they know that. We came in on a British destroyer and we're commandos <laughs> and we're here to we're here to take the diamonds. So anyway, you know, I, like, I sure hope you're not fifth column, by the way. <laughs> exactly. Like they give their they give their mission away to anyone that asks. <laughs> Are they good spies? We're going to walk into my dad's uh, the lobby of my dad's business and sit there for 10 hours waiting for people to bring us the diamonds like there's the mission it's like wow this is this movie's really tough to, uh, to it's not really getting my heart beating you know what I mean like the the only thing that's getting my heart beating is Eva Bartok <laughs> do you think they ever dabbled with the idea of this being a rogue mission and it being Smith you know recruiting his spy buddies to go you know, work with his dad's business in order to get these things out. Like the the official unofficialness of this whole thing uh, could be a plot point. I kind of thought that there may be a double cross coming when yeah. they put the briefcases in his dad's safe. I was like, right. that safe is going to blow big. <laughs> like, I mean, that's kind of the cool thing about diamonds, right? You could you could 
put a bomb inside a safe full of diamonds and it would blow the door off and there would just be diamonds there for you to pick up. Ben, don't give it away. God. (laughs) (laughs) It's true, though, that the whole the whole film seemed like there was one. It was going to be revealed that there was another plot. Mm hmm. And like the the idea that they're sitting in the they're sitting basically in their dad's office and they keep looking out the window and there are there are fifth column Dutch troops on both ends of the street. And every once in a while they come by and like give uh, give the girl a parking ticket or whatever. But (laughs) they, they could just come knock on the door or like even better storm the door. And yet, and yet what, what, you know, the, all the action at that, about uh, around that idea is like we're gonna get in the car they can see us they can see us looking at them they're right there but they're waiting for us to drive the 60 feet from where we're parked and then they're gonna stop us and then and then the fight is on that was all super like weirdly weirdly paced it was baffling at the beginning of this film, I was like, this is such an exciting premise. The Nazis are invading Holland. They're going the day of the invasion to slip into Amsterdam and pull a diamond heist. And somehow, despite all of that, despite the presence of Eva Bartok, they came on a destroyer, Ben. <laughs> ben, one does not simply slip into Amsterdam. <laughs> <laughs> we just landed from a British destroyer. Can you tell us where the port commander is? I mean, like, once the heist is actually in, like, happening, when they're, like, breaking into the vault and stuff, like, that stuff is super tense and, and interesting, and there's the great mechanic of the the hurdy-gurdy playing upstairs, and then the, the song is going to change when the bad guys show up. Like, all that's awesome, and it's, like, it's so, it's so amazing to have a premise like this lead to such a bloodless film overall bloodless the climax of the film is anna just straight blowing away people in that (laughs) (laughs) inside that shop that was amazing yeah that was the the movie stopped being boring and shitty that was that was the moment (laughs) i like a slow burn you just you just want to burn the whole time the problem with the fifth column plot line is that we also never had there's so much interesting material there in in the idea that a portion of the of the Dutch population was going to be German sympathizers. We had a colonel in the Dutch military that was our guy, but there was somehow a lieutenant and a and seemingly three truckloads of dudes at least who were who were fifth columnists. But that was never we never heard any further explanation of like how that played out. We didn't have, we never saw a bird's eye view of that, of that conflict that would have been happening within the Netherlands. It was always just like, Oh, the guy with the tall hat is, is a bad Dutch guy. Also, no one ever spoke Dutch in this movie. There's not a single line of dialogue in Dutch. Yeah. Well, my experience in Amsterdam is that people refuse to speak Dutch with me. So, but you know, like a father and a son are probably going to speak Dutch to one another if they That's aren't true. if they aren't both British actors. It's actually precisely the opposite of my experience of Amsterdam. It's the only non-English speaking country I've ever visited where where people assume that I'm a local. <laughs> you do have a you have a Dutch air. 
The Dutch think you're Dutch because you stand up straight. <laughs> also, it's because it's because you're riding in the basket of my bicycle. <laughs> That's why they treat you in Dutch. Uh, speaking of the Dutch, though, like this movie comes out in like 1959 or 1960 or something like that. And I was wondering as I watched it, does this have any of the same aspirations as some of the other Dutch resistancy kinds of films we've watched to help, uh, help kind of rehabilitate the Netherlands in, uh, in their own eyes or in the eyes of, of, the UK or whatever, like the, like, is there an attempt being made here to say like these guys sure were on the wrong side of the line for most of the war, but it wasn't because there's something, you know, like it wasn't because like all of the Netherlands was excited to receive Hitler as their own. You know, it's, it's funny because I think we've talked about the Dutch resistance in the past and, and that, and what you're saying about the the way that it was it's kind of like oh we'd like to tell the story of the dutch resistance as being somewhat like the french resistance but it kind of wasn't like that at all but what yeah. the, what is true is in that first few days of the german invasion of the netherlands the dutch army against all odds like really put up a fight really kicked the Germans asses. And uh, I think the expectation was that they were, that the, the German army was just going to waltz into the Netherlands and not have any resistance. And in fact, like their paratroopers got their asses handed to them. The Dutch did, uh, did their like ancient trick of flooding. Um, but then there were, there were all these instances, I mean, several instances where some really valiant, like small group of Dutch soldiers fended off a much bigger group of Germans. And the result was that in order to get the Netherlands to capitulate, the Germans like carpet bombed Rotterdam that had no Rotterdam was just sort of like, Hey, we're just over here just trading diamonds and doing our Rotterdam stuff. And the Germans were like, okay, well, what we're going to do is like level Rotterdam and as an example of what we're going to do to everything if you don't surrender. And eventually the very curiously, like the, the Netherlands never officially capitulated to the Germans. Um, unlike France, there was always a, a Dutch government in um, like, like they surrendered, but they surrendered just tactically they said like all right we're putting down our guns like you have you have defeated us please stop carpet bombing yeah but they never said like on behalf of the dutch people we surrender or whatever they didn't set up a a new government in vichy dam no no <laughs> but 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 so in answer to your question like i think the the way the resistance is portrayed here is kind of like those guys all would have gotten mopped up in the first 24 hours after the Germans took over. And that would have put an end to that whole business of like saboteurs. But the idea that the Germans were right on the outskirts and held back, that was, that's true. The timing of the film is super interesting. Cause like when they start making their pitch to the assembled diamond merchants of Amsterdam, you know, like one of the guys makes the case like, hey, like a lot of us here are 
are you know going to have a tough time uh, as the occupation sets in being that we are Jews and we don't want to do things to like further uh, you know disadvantage ourselves in the eyes of the Nazis and th- and that like that comes across in this film as being just like supremely naive like having no concept of the the cruelty that will be visited on them because of their Judaism and I wondered like that, that that was like the moment in the film that made me sit up in my in my seat because I feel like people make calculations like that all the time like oh you know I don't want to I don't want like a further reprisal if I if I do the right thing now yeah the math of how much worse it will be for them based on this decision is unclear to them but very clear to us right and the and the like what the occupation will mean is still like a total unknown I mean it it felt like um, the weekend before the quarantine started here where, you know, we were like, what is this going to be? Like, what, what are we in for here? And, and, you know, people were all over the map in terms of what they were anticipating. That's why I sent my diamonds to London. Oh, yeah, that was smart. First thing. <laughs> Let old Boris look after him. As far as the plan goes... Do you think it's more dangerous to give these guys the diamonds than, say, sink them in a canal somewhere? Interesting. Like, why risk these guys? I mean, they're they guys. They came in on a British destroyer. They're gonna they're yeah, gonna leave they via did. British destroyer. Hopefully, is that the safest place for these diamonds? I mean, there's a lot of like things that could go wrong just on in the car ride to. I'm again, right? Right, right. <laughs> if the movie said, if the movie had one British officer back in London who said, we need the diamonds. We're going to use them to make panzer cutting laser beams. So go get the diamonds. <laughs> My God. Then it would, then the case could be made to all these diamond merchants. Like the diamonds are going to be used to defeat the Germans. But as it is, it's like, we're going to take your diamonds and put them in safe deposit boxes so the Germans can put them in their safe deposit boxes. And then after the war, we'll have it written down which of you gave us diamonds. That was so insane <laughs> to me. Like, well, we, we're definitely not giving you receipts, you know, because, <laughs> because we don't want this plan to have a line drawn from these diamonds to us. The plan just doesn't seem very well conceived. Well, um... Down with Hitler. No no one is going to get their diamonds back. And all of these people are going to die. Be sure to put your name and your address on all of these bags of diamonds. Right now, you, you think of those diamonds as your wealth. They're your future. They're the reason that, that, I mean, they're your patrimony. Like that little bag of diamonds that he gave John at the end where he's like, I got you these diamonds when you were little. It's like, you're a diamond merchant. You've got diamonds all over the place. What this little, these four diamonds are like John's <laughs> this, these are the ones for him. Like he's got a, yeah. he's got a bag of diamonds. That's the size of a, of a punching bag, but this little, uh, and then at the, in the end, when he gives one diamond to Anna, it's like, really? How much are diamonds worth? I don't think they're worth that much, but, but that, but that slow motion disaster thing where you're like, but these diamonds. And then you realize, Oh, right. My 
belt full of gold coins is what weighed me down crossing the river and I ended up dead. And so by the end of the war, most of those guys would have died in camps. And knowing that that is the future, like the bravery of giving those diamonds away, it's easy to miss that at the time, there's no way for them to know how it's going to end. And, and they're, you know, they're handing away their whole, everything they own in, in a way and dooming themselves in their own eyes to reprisal. They just couldn't possibly, no one could have ever fathomed that like, no, everyone you know is going to be dead at the end of this movie. Do you think that kind of doom is effective in this movie? The camera pans to that, to the, to the Jewish diamond merchant who looks like Vladimir Lenin. And he's the one that says giving you these diamonds is in and of itself a kind of act of suicide. And that's the only moment that we really sit and consider the Holocaust. The movie's pretty brave, not brave, but the movie doesn't whitewash the fact that most of these diamond merchants were Jewish. You know, there, there was a little bit of a risk when we're introduced to John's father. And it's like, wait a minute, are we going to go through this whole movie without acknowledging that this is, just, this is like a, a, a very, very fraught business with a lot of, of Jewish merchants. And then no, it, the, the film, it doesn't, it doesn't make it specific, but it doesn't like try to sneak around it either. I thought it was interesting that, uh, Anna's boyfriend, you know, we never get a, definitive answer on what happened to him the movie really lets our imaginations fill that in he died but he died in a freak bicycle riding accident he was riding in the basket well even if he's captured you know like his his, his unit was overrun that's that's what we know right we know that she's never going to hear from him again we also totally understand that she has to stay in holland to feel like she didn't abandon him, even though we, you know, like the, our best guess is that he's probably dead and that would be almost preferable to have him having been captured in some ways. There's such a weird relationship in this film that, that like pervades throughout, right? Of actual death, supposed death, eventual death. Didn't you feel that? Like Anna's got nothing to lose because she's dead already. Anna's, man friend is probably dead for sure all of the jewish diamond merchants definitely going to be dead but not dead right now and and the ones who don't have a whiff of that on them at all are the spies who seem to be like dancing through this graveyard that is amsterdam right now which is going to be like which at, right at this moment is pre-death like pre-invasion but it's but it's been determined like it will happen yeah, although Amsterdam survives the war just fine, and most Dutch people do too. It just became an occupied place where, where the the expectation, though, like it's it's like a fog over everything, right? I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. Like everyone has a different relationship to death and when it comes for them in this film, and it's very intentional feeling. Yeah, the case that never got made to Anna, the like British intelligence would have made her an operative, and they would have parachuted her back into the Netherlands 
like over and over. Would she have parachuted with a uh, Mercedes? She probably would have been taken in on a destroyer at first. Oh, yeah. She'd have to come in on a British destroyer. And then you know what? She would be the fifth columnist. Right? Wow. Because the fifth column switches. The fifth column boot is on the other foot. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so what they what they never did is they never said to her, like, come to Britain and fight the war. They were like, come to Britain because your war is over. And that and that gave her the chance to be heroic and say, I can't leave the Netherlands. But if they had said, and I you know, I'm just thinking in terms of like basically as a pickup artist, like what you're going to say to a girl to get her to get in the car. I was just going to go in that direction, John. (laughs) Do you think Anna turns him down like because she actually wants to stay or because she's just not not into uh, Jan Smith? (laughs) I think she's like, if I get in this boat, then this guy's going to want to hook up and I don't want to hook up with him. Every time he goes in for a kiss, I always give him the cheek. I gave him a flower. Hopefully that'll be enough. How do you propose returning to England? Mr. Churchill has given them a destroyer. I've got a random question uh, that might be a nice diversion in the middle of this episode. When you knock a guy out (laughs) and then you throw him into the water, this is a scene that we see all the time in action films. Like, into the water he goes. He dies, right? He's face down. That's what I'm saying. Like, it's such a weird uh, quality to fight scene death to remove a character from a scene having lost a fight by going into water because I think it gives the hero the look that he didn't just murder a guy when, in fact, he did. And I had that thought when, um, I think it was Jan, but it could have been Dylan. He has that, he has that beat-em-up fight on the bridge over the canal Yeah, I think it's Dylan. I'm like, throw him in the water. Throw him in the water. Like, that's what these canals are for. And he does. And as soon as he does, I was like, oh, shit. That was definitely a murder. Yeah. One of the things that was confusing about that scene to me was that Dylan has a gun. Yeah. And it's not like he was trying to keep quiet because that soldier fired his freaking rifle in that alley (laughs) three times. That guy sucked. So what he did suck. So why the fuck is dylan hiding in a stack of cardboard boxes and then gets jumps out and gets in a fight with this guy who basically hands it to him for the first half of the fight that's just spycraft shit baby why didn't he just (laughs) shoot him with his pistol i know you're a fifth columnist but i really want you to put on these sunglasses you're not gonna believe it (laughs) yeah that was weird the only time keith david has ever portrayed a dutch soldier When you attempt suicide by driving off of a bridge, Amsterdam is not a great place for your mental health, right? (laughs) That's why Anna has that 10,000-yard stare for full-on three-quarters of the movie. Yeah, there's bridges everywhere, right? You could could drive your car off into almost anything. Let's talk about Eva Bartok a little bit. I I think she's great in this movie, and I was shocked after the first half an hour that she was elevated to main character status. I didn't think that was going to be her story. And I think the movie got better for it. Yeah, she's definitely a lifeblood to this otherwise bloodless movie. <laughs> Would you 
Save it for the rating. (laughs) (laughs) At the very top of the movie, there's a woman who is working in British intelligence and she appears in the in the opening scenes and she's in the car as they drive down to the british uh, the british destroyer to get on and she gets out and she's like handing the suitcases or something and but the but the film couldn't be less interested in her but she's there right and we never there's it, it never cuts to a shot of her like saying good luck or raising an eyebrow or something the film really treats her as uh, an orderly she doesn't even say, look out for fifth columnist. No, she doesn't. Everyone says in this movie. She never points her finger and says, there's the British destroyer. <laughs> Did you guys come in on that? Oh, you're going out on it. I got it. I got you. I got you. <laughs> but Anna's entrance, where they're like trying all the keys, like, we can't get any one of these cars to start. And it's like, there's a car. Yeah, it's like the most beautiful Mercedes convertible that you've ever seen and this beautiful woman is trying to drive it into the ocean i thought i clocked her when they were on the key with all the refugees trying to get on boats and oh she was there i feel like they walk past her and she's in the background like like negotiating with a boat master of some kind Ah. and yeah, I'm actually, I, I scrubbed to it. I found her and she's, and it's the parents of her boyfriend. She's negotiating to get onto this boat. Does it slow down long enough that it's for, that it, that it counts as a foreshadow? It's there for you to notice if you notice and you're not going to miss it if you don't. I like missing it and being told about it later. I do too. That's nice. They, they have that whole thing where the, uh, where the, where the police officer shoots at them and accuses them of being fifth columnists. And they're like, no, sir, we're not fifth columnists. We just came in on this British destroyer. Right. And he says, well, I think you're fifth columnist. So I'm going to take you to the Harbor master's office. Could All this of that be transpires. any more of a British destroyer behind me? <laughs> so, so then Anna has successfully gotten her, I guess, future in-laws onto this boat and then goes to take could, her own life could which you is imagine being those in-laws you've gotten on the boat all right you've got a shot at safety here you turn around to do the wave goodbye to your daughter-in-law and you see her car head for the, <laughs> t- <laughs> the edge. that's not a good feeling and then your boat explodes in a million pieces because it hits right. a harbor mine <laughs> not bad, a great way to end your day bad day for the in-laws the soldiers have to dig them out the fifth column is everywhere I felt like when when the psycho port guard took us to see the harbor master, that was maybe the first time that the that the three commandos stood there in front of a person that they they didn't know they've never met and they have no idea what his affiliations are, and just said, "Yeah, we're spies." Here's our plan. <laughs> Here's the address that we're going to, and we're going to sit there the whole movie. And if you wanted to, if you were a fifth columnist, this is where you could find us. I just wanted to hang out there. I felt very safe in that guy's office. I love that. That there's a weird photo process happening. I think that they're maybe rear projecting yeah. what's outside the windows in that office, but it is amazing to see the world just burning outside this guy's office and he is like walking around like stamping pieces of paper and like placing phone calls and like does not does not seem to be letting the stresses of the collapse of his society 
get to him. Like hitting the deck several times is just another day at work. Yeah, he's like, yeah, you know, the the Germans, they come around, they they drop bombs on the key. Anyways, good luck getting to Amsterdam and uh, uh, what would you say? Diamond heist and <laughs> some kind of a British destroyer situation? <laughs> cool. The psycho cop that takes them up there then places a very, like, ominous phone call to Amsterdam. And I wondered if we were meant to gather that he was, like, calling ahead to alert the local authorities that they were on their way but if so like isn't that good for them or is he in fact a fifth columnist he's a fifth columnist he was the one that was calling the lieutenant but the problem is that he had the license number he knew where they were going because they gave him the address yeah and that's why the lieutenant showed up there but why did the lieutenant and the fifth columnists never just walk in the front door of the diamond merchant because several times in the film, someone in the cast says, well, it's pretty obvious why we're here. They say like, hello, we're the British people that have come. And someone else goes, yeah, it's pretty clear why you're here. And the whole movie, I was like, why is that clear? Is it really clear that the one thing that British spies would want is the diamonds? What about, what about all the other things? Aren't they here for the Rembrandts? Or for the, I don't know what else. No, they're, they're like everybody that goes to Amsterdam. They're there for the coffee. No, they're here for the diamonds. There's a like real dad movie appeal to this. Like somebody in London was like, bloody hell, there are a good number of industrial diamonds in Amsterdam right now. And it's about to be overrun by the cherries. We should get a couple of chaps in there yeah. and get them out. Get them out. Get the diamonds. There's nothing a dad loves more than that somebody thought of that and then, like, got a destroyer and some spies together and, and went and did it, right? Are those space balls coming out of that statue's nose? <laughs> Bloody hell, there goes the planet. <laughs> <laughs> My one sense of this, I think the, the, the thing that makes this movie the most 1960 or 1959... I see the date bo- as both. I've I like some of the websites I looked this up on had 1960 and others had 1959. Maybe it's uh maybe it's when it was distributed in the US. That's yeah. what it is. Yeah. It's earlier UK release date 59. Uh big July 6th premiere in the United States. You oh. want to get that 4th of July weekend. There you go. Do you think they brought the movie over on a British destroyer? I bet they did. I bet they did. You know, the British destroyer that they used in this film was actually a famous British destroyer that had many actions throughout the war and won several awesome. accommodations. And then in the end, like was damaged by a mine in the final hours of the war. It's like it had a pretty illustrious career. But no, what makes this movie really 1959 to me is that, you know, it's made by the rank organization, which even if your name is Arthur rank rank means stink. And I would change the name of my company. I would not call it the rank organization. Like my name is Roderick and my company is called the Roderick group. And that makes sense. But if my name was rank, I would call my company uh, films incorporated. (laughs) 
I didn't know we could be doing this on Friendly Fire. We're going to do bits on production companies. Yeah, they're 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 <laughs> just they're just standing there waiting for us. But the the thing about it is, watch out, United Artists. <laughs> We're coming for you next. <laughs> Britain in the late fifties was was in a you know in a long period of depression. They, I think, um, it took them a long time to recover from the war, and the film itself just does not have the production values of a Hollywood picture of the same era. Yeah. I read that it was very unusual that they shot on location in Amsterdam uh, for this film. Like most most films of this time produced with British financing would have been just shot locally and they would have dressed some corner of London for for Amsterdam. I don't think you could make London look like Amsterdam no matter how much paper mache you put on it. I, I was I, I was blown away that they got this. I mean, they must have filmed at five o'clock in the morning because the streets of Amsterdam were empty. It's amazing. Really cool and spooky. Open your eyes. There's something about an empty place that is its own stressor. It's 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 well done here. What's great is that Amsterdam is kind of unchanged. So you can look at this movie and absolutely recognize places that you've been right it's it's the same it's just the same town but i've been high as fuck there i've been <laughs> high as fuck there <laughs> but the whole the whole thing about um the 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 rear projection the fact that uh all the explosions kind of like when the airplane is strafing them it's pretty good the rear projection doesn't do much for anna as a driver Though I think it makes her seem like a very bad driver. Did you notice that one shot? I think it's when they when they finally leave uh, Smith's office. They they get in the car because the the fifth columnists are now engaged in a gunfight with loyal Dutch patriot troops, uh-huh. and they drive away. And the rear projection like crossfades because yeah. they like apparently didn't have enough footage to get the entire drive away. But didn't want to cut. <laughs> that was the best take. We're gonna go with that. Yeah, we'll just uh, we'll just do crossfade in between two pieces of background <laughs> footage. <laughs> that was big fun, and and I think this uh, the reason it works is because it's always the same quality throughout. I have a uh, I have a moment of pedantry about the use of Amsterdam in this film. Actually. During the agent's drive to the flower market, two zebra crossings can be seen. These were not in use in Amsterdam until the 1950s. Oh. It's something I thought a lot about, like how much of a like bicycle culture Amsterdam has. You don't really see a lot of bicycles in this film, and part of that is just that there aren't really a lot of people around in the shots. But... Um, I love that I love that there was kind of like a municipal transit nerd that was like, ah, they didn't have those back then. That type of crosswalk was invented later. <laughs> Got high in that crosswalk. <laughs> this movie really uh comes to its climax during that bank vault scene, and I think it's like I expected a pace of play here that was so much faster than what we got, and I'm so much happier that it didn't play out like how I expected because the plan to to drill in and blow up the timer on the vault is never guaranteed. Like, we have a plan that we think might work, 
We hope it works. We've got we've got Willem, the kid who looks like a time traveling Tignataro outside, you know, <laughs> cranking on the on the hurdy gurdy. Like the kid that's like either twenty five or fourteen. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and John, you were describing a scene earlier on in the film where, where we're just like angled up at the top of a staircase waiting. And I love how we're made to wait in this scene after after we're being told like it may take a little bit of time for the auto timer, the auto lock to disengage. <laughs> and we're just going to have to sit here. And so we do. Over and I over with that. the hurdy-gurdy going in the background. And it's like, <laughs> still waiting, still waiting. It could be any time. The hurdy-gurdy is crazy-making. It is an insane soundtrack to this movie. It's it's such a strange accompaniment to stress. Yeah. What is it? It's Pentecost that they're celebrating? That's what the hurdy-gurdy is about? It's Whit Monday, which is, which is like part of the Pentecost. And I actually got caught there in the Netherlands on Whit Monday one time long ago where I didn't know what Whit Monday was because we don't celebrate uh, we in the United States we don't like nationally celebrate that many Christian holidays but the Netherlands was so shut down on this Monday like you could hear a freaking <laughs> pin drop that it looked like this movie yeah and I was like hey I just want like a sandwich or a or like a pop or a cup of coffee or a pack of cigarettes. Like I just want some basic things today. And everywhere I went, people were like, ha ha, you want a pack of cigarettes too bad. It's wit Monday. <laughs> and I, and I was, and I asked several people like, what is a wit Monday? And they're like the Pentecost, duh. And I was like, I'm sorry, what is a Pentecost? Hey asshole, you going to crank on this hurdy gurdy or what? I didn't know what the Pentecost was. I was like, is it, I mean, is it a thing to do with, Easter turns out yes sort of but but when when the guy said oh it's wit monday and you've got to give a dollar to the hurdy-gurdy man i had a it triggered me i was like oh fuck i really i really <laughs> want a pack of cigarettes right now i haven't had a cigarette in 12 years but the fact that i know i can't get one on wit monday is traumatizing that whole story is the subject of your new hour on uh, netflix <laughs> called triggered <laughs> wow so the vault does open and we get the diamonds inside and then outside the bank it is dutch heat it is a fucking firefight all the way to the end yeah i like that we like got to the end boss that yeah, that lieutenant yeah. being in the in the store that they break into was very satisfying very Definitely. fun yeah I wasn't sure. I mean, we're told that Anna works for the Dutch security forces, but until she blows that guy away, I wasn't sure what side she'd be on. That, uh, there was a pregnant moment there, too. You thought that that, that, that might have been a subplot that, that ran that late into the film before she betrays I us all? I couldn't rule it out. Wow. All right, Adam. I mean, that's the kind of movie that... I think that's the difference between you and Ben. You were watching this movie thinking, wow, something's about to happen. And Ben was like, nothing's happening. Nothing's going to happen. <laughs> and in the end, yeah. you're both right. She's like Erica from Red Dawn, it turns out. Uh, she is amazing in this movie. Yeah. I mean, like the 
the like button on the movie them standing on the deck of the destroyer as they <laughs> ride it back to to England and watch the huge explosions of the fuel dumps that the that Major Dylan has arranged to be destroyed is like just like a ha yeah actually secretly we were also doing this much easier to understand other thing (laughs) 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 i guess the briefcases that he brought were just full of bombs for the the dutch resistance to use in blowing up their fuel dumps i guess i wondered that too like (laughs) what they don't have the makings of explosives in the uk it's such a trope of british intelligence that that one of the guys is carrying bombs in a leather briefcase. They look like dog poop. <laughs> <laughs> if you're Major Dillon, that's got to be a sad scene, right? Like, you brought the suitcases over on a British destroyer. You've safeguarded them the entire time. If I would have wanted to be instrumental in, in the explosion at some point. Like, set them up and blow them off. But no, he just watches from a distance. Had to be frustrating. It's just smash cut to credits <laughs> after that. It's so wild. I love that John makes not one, but two passes at Anna before the movie's over. Like right before the finish line, one last yeah. pass. Come on, babe. Come on. Come on. What's it going to take to get you in the car? And Dylan is is like, look, man, you need to chill out. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of Annas in Holland before it's over. Yeah, He does. He actually says that, right? Yeah, but he means it one way, and, like, if you're looking for comedy, we're reading it as the other way. <laughs> as in, get over it, Jan. Yeah. But will any of us be over this film anytime soon? I feel like <laughs> I feel like Ben has been over it uh, from Jump. It's the time of the show where we rate and review the movie we've just discussed. Operation Amsterdam, 1959's Operation Amsterdam, directed by Michael McCarthy, his last movie. He died at 42. Damn. And from what I read was a guy on the come up. And I can see why. I think there was a lot to like about this film. Throughout, there is that audio leitmotif, a way to build tension by... Combining two things that don't quite fit is how this film operates. It's the exact opposite of a hell of a combination. This is a combination that is meant to make you feel unsettled and weird. And it's the presence of that crank organ, which I mistakenly thought was a calliope, but a calliope has like symbols and and shit, right? This is this is specifically a hurdy-gurdy, or is it is there a form of organ that is crank organ? I got a crank organ. I would have called it a hurdy-gurdy too, but you know, you see these in European cities and usually it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a, your classic organ grinder situation, except a big one. I, I'm sure that an organ pedant is going to yell at us for calling it a hurdy-gurdy. They call it a pyramid hmm. in this film. The hurdy-gurdy is a thing that you strap on and then wind. It's like old timey and small. Um, and what's a hurdy-gurdy man? Here come the hurdy-gurdy man who comes singing songs of love. So they're just called street organs. Okay. Or barrel organ. Um, well, the sound that that organ plays 
pervades this spy film. And I feel like it's an idea that you would never be able to sell in the room. Like, this is going to be an action-packed spy flick, but it's going to be like staging a bank robbery on Main Street at Disneyland. (laughs) So for all of the work that the street organ does in the film, I think it's worth recognizing that with our rating system. So let's grade Operation Amsterdam from one to five street organs. I think as we talked about before, this is one of those sneaky films that starts out as something that at least personally I didn't like in the beginning, but as I started to to like acclimate to it, I began to really like it. And I thought at certain points in the film it could be special, like key special. I don't think it really rose to that level, but when Anna's story came to the forefront, it really became interesting to me in a big way. She's introduced to us as being so destroyed, it seems as though she'd be beyond any kind of redemption. But by the end, she's full-on Ripley in Aliens blowing people away and, and driving the getaway car. And I love that kind of transformation. I love... I love the tension of a love never being realized in the end. I love the friendship that Dylan and Smith have at the end. It's some real lost in translation ennui, and that's always going to be a thing that works for me. I think it's a really intriguing movie from 1959 or 60, and it felt in many ways like a much more modern film than the year it was made. I'm really glad I saw it. So I'm going to give it the four street organs treatment. There's a lot of interesting ideas in this film. I think that uh, you're right. The the street organ as a setup is not the uh, the thing a Hollywood money man would be super receptive to if you're pitching this. He'd be like, tell me more about that British destroyer. <laughs> Can we do something with that? Uh, how often can we work in references to the destroyer in the in the picture? Because we're not going to have m- enough money to see it for very long. But could we like talk about it a lot? I've got a bet with another executive producer about how many times we could say that line in the movie. <laughs> the puzzle of like what would it feel like to be in Amsterdam on this particular day in history? Like, what are people thinking about? Like, there and there's tragic moments like people making the case for like get me on that destroyer like i'll come with you and the diamonds and being told like sorry we can't you a jewish man we cannot take but this sack of diamonds we can and yeah sorry willem we're uh, leaving you behind no matter what the tactical calculus of that winds up feeling so cruel and so awful and like I do give this movie credit for getting to ideas like that. It's just that it's it's got like a great last part and it felt like such a slog to get there. Like so many, like the scene where they talk about what the plan is, like the first scene in the movie is like so fucking boring, so unbelievably <laughs> long and stupid. And it's like, come on, like we're going to, it's a spy movie. Like have... Have the three guys that show up be not three almost identical looking guys, you know, and and like one of them is a spy and the other two are the same thing. They're just diamond experts like and one of them barely does anything, you know, like, yeah, we haven't talked about him at all. Have one of them be like good with knives or something. (laughs) (laughs) Or, Or have one of them be like a safe cracker, you know, like that would be 
like like this is based on a real thing that happened this movie but uh it's so loosely based on it because it, because as they describe in the film there are like not really any records about it because it was such a big secret like it just needed like two more passes at the script to really like tighten all these bolts and then it could have been something really special like the key so i think i'm gonna give it like two and three quarter street organs mm. the big there's a big gap there between the movies that you guys saw Adam yeah. saw Adam saw a movie that was almost at the level of the key, and Ben didn't see that movie. Um, Adam, I have to say that the that I felt like the boringness of this movie was pretty strong. There was a <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of boringness uh, happening. That's one of the that's one of the key strengths of our podcast is its boringness. Do I just have a terrible memory? Like. The, the exciting stuff happened last. That's what I'm remembering. <laughs> you have recency bias. Yeah. But also I feel like there's a, there's like a spy movie, heist movie excitement that goes in. You, you know, you, you come riding in on a wave of like, yeah, let's do this. Yeah. Um, because the premise is so exciting and the fact that there are some trench coats happening and, um, and you, we are in the Netherlands at a time in the war that, uh, we never see that never gets talked about. Um, and the fact that the Germans never appear, we never see a solitary German in this movie actually adds to the kind of menace. We hear the bombs going off. We, we know they're, they're hours away. Um, but that isn't enough to overcome the fact that the three lead dudes look exactly the same and are wearing the same jacket, basically the two, the two diamond dudes other than introducing us to the one diamond dudes, dad appear to not be necessary. This whole thing could be, could have been pulled off by Dylan by himself and Dylan could have carried a third briefcase and still probably pulled it off. So yeah, just the whole movie kind of, I, if there had been a subplot that, was more interesting than just that Dylan is also on a secret mission that is just, as Ben said, kind of the, the more obvious and easily explained secret mission. The fact that they land in the port and they're like, we're here because we're spies and we're doing a spy mission. But then Dylan the whole time is like, don't touch my briefcase. Don't touch my briefcase. And it's like, <laughs> Well, these are your fellow dudes. Like you could just tell them that it's full of bombs, right? right. Like it's pretty obvious full of bombs. But if, you know, like the Anna is Anna a traitor subplot went out the window basically like three minutes after it was introduced when it was, when they kind of were like, we need to confirm that you're not a spy. And she was like, here's my confirmation. And they were like, oh, well done. Good job. <laughs> So there wasn't any other thing going on, like secret where everybody was dead the whole time. There was nothing to make the boringness interesting, I guess is what I'm saying. Well, that's up to you. <laughs> Maybe that's why I like the movie. I I projected my my interesting into the boring. That's what a subjective film review does. This is this is why our, our scores are so different. If you're bored, then you're boring. Adam was a big Harvey Danger fan, unlike Ben. Yeah. This this movie did the thing with the kettle drums 
where every time somebody was doing something like creeping around or doing something interesting, there was like boom, 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 kind of like that 60s weird kettle drum. And then there was then there was like a vibraphone. But then there was a marimba, like a like like a like a wooden marimba. Yeah, that's a nice sound. It was a nice sound, but after a while I was like, I do not think that this movie is justifying this amount of because that's the those are the soundtrack elements. You've got to justify your marimba. You do right if you're like tiptoeing through a minefield, or if you're like if you're or if you're a skeleton, a skeleton, and you're walking around, that's that's where you get the marimba. Thank you. Or if you're uh, if you're like Fred Flintstone and you're sneaking across the room, and it's just your toes walking. If you're in a tuxedo, but you're also planting a bomb in a bookcase. Those are the main examples of marimba use. Yeah. <laughs> Look for that in our in our upcoming film text. Marimba in film. But like the marimba came in the marimba came in when Dylan was walking through the Delft pottery factory. And it was like, this is an interesting scene. There are guys, you know, it's obviously like a resistance headquarters, but there's also guys that are still making pots here, which is kind of cool. The marimba suggests tiptoeing and everyone is just walking around normally in their normal shoes. Mm. The marimba suggests that some of that pottery was about to get broken. Yeah, and that didn't happen. (laughs) Anyway, I love the I love the Dutchness of it. I love the Amsterdamness of it. I feel like uh, what this is, is a great movie to watch with no expectations. It's a great movie. If it popped on TV, like Sunday afternoon, um, you'd watch it and be like, Oh, that was fun. But, but I don't think that it rises above three street organs for me, which, you know, I know is kind of a high rating even for as much as I was calling it boring, but there's, there is fun in it. And, it's definitely a war movie. We can agree on that. Upon that, we can all agree. Well, we try not to agree on the selection of our guys. Maybe we did this time, though. I hope not. A lot of characters in this movie. Who's your guy, Ben? Oh, man. I, uh, I'm i going to give it to the safe cracker. Uh, Peter, I think his name is. Um, I feel like they made a grave mistake with him because he is down there in the in the basement of the of the bank building when they blow the door and i feel like that's a guy you got to st- send upstairs and like close a door so that when the explosion happens his ears are still okay to listen t- for the the ticking clock like and he he manages to he manages to save the day like at the at the 11th hour he he gets the time lock disengaged from that door and uh, and they're able to get the diamonds but you know without him that that whole thing is a bust and I, f- I felt like they were just so lucky to have found a resistance cell that had a guy with that skill set even you go on a production to a place you've never been you need a fixer a, a guy to to open up some doors for you and this guy was the fixer the safe yeah. fixer the guy you sure meet was. once you're there that's a good guy. Yeah. How about you, Adam? Did you have a guy? My guy is 
early in the movie and his absence late in the movie made me very sad. My guy is the rowboatman <laughs> who doesn't want to be paid. He doesn't want to be paid by the gang because uh, his country's uh, ruling class was taken to safety the night before. Maybe on a British destroyer? Hard to tell. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the rowboatman's like, thanks, but no thanks. I'm not going to take your filthy lucre. Uh, <laughs> but I will promise to be here to pick you up. You're just going to have to trust me on that. And when they get there for the pickup, there's a moment of pregnancy where you're like, did that rowboatman fucking leave? Like, did he ditch these guys? No, he didn't. He died in an air raid. And that made me feel terrible. He kept his word and he died for it. But... I love that Roe Whitman's whole deal, not taking the tip and also keeping up his end of the bargain. He didn't need a bribe for that. He he did it because he's a good man. So Roboatman is my guy. He's also uh, played by Lex Goodsmith, sure. <laughs> who has aged into just an incredible face. He he did age. He's 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 been dead a long time. But uh <laughs> like as old as he is in this movie, just a great face for film. I liked him quite a bit, so that's mine. Who's yours, John? I was surprised at the number of actors in this movie that li that lived into their 90s. There were a couple of the lead actors died in 2019. And the guy that would normally, like, three quarters of the way through the movie, um, I thought that my guy was the guy that playing resistance leader, Alex, uh, the actor Christopher Rhodes, because... He's very handsome. He's unusually handsome and tall, given that everybody else in this movie looks the same. You just felt that he had fired a lot of guns, a lot of machine guns. He just had this kind of casual way of pointing it and shooting it where I felt very confident that he had done it. And it turns out he, the actor playing him was Sir Christopher Rhodes, the third baronet of of Rhodesdom Rhodes 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 Rhodesdam Rhodesdam damn it and he <laughs> I think we tied on that one he was a he had like fought in World War II he became a lieutenant colonel he was awarded the Croix de Guerre he had He's got a real Colin Farrell look to him he does he uh, he had he the he won the Legion of Merit and he, of everybody in this movie, died at age 50. Um, so he had every quality of a guy that I was going to pick as my guy. But then in the final moments of the movie, the movie delivered my guy to me. My guy is the little boy who throughout the air raid where the, where the road is being sh strafed, his horse is up on the road and he's watching the horse and the plane keeps coming back and strafing the road. And the little boy is very worried about the horse. And finally, in the end, the little boy cannot stand it. And he runs up on the road to save the horse and gets machine gunned. The movie had no reason to do that. <laughs> and doesn't linger on him we never see him again we just watch him get shot the movie had no reason to kill a kid just, just in the last minute the movie was like you know what we haven't done we haven't killed a kid 
Like, let's just, <laughs> let's do a thing where we, we put a horse up there, a beautiful horse, and then we make the kid try to save the horse, and then we kill the kid. And I was like, uh-huh, that's the kid. The kid is my guy. Wow, tragic. No stranger to uh, tragedy is this show. Will our next film be full of that kind of drama? For that, we go to the 120-sided die and John Roderick. Here we go. I got my die cup going on here. Let me get the last bit of coffee out of the bottom. All right, here we go. 120 sides has the die. Don't need any more sides than that. What is it going to say to us today? Oh, and I should have said before uh, you spilled that out that I've sorted all the World War II films to the bottom of the list. Oh, did we do three in a row? We did. Hmm. 38 is a is an old movie, guys. Uh, it's not a it's not a World War II movie because it was made before World War II. It's a 1933 film directed by Leo McCrary about. A conflict between Fredonia and Sylvania. It's duck soup. <laughs> we. I've never seen duck soup. I'm excited about this. I haven't either. Looks like we've got a, a very silly movie coming coming next week. Looking forward to. Uh, and uh, in the meantime, I think I think we got to leave it leave it with Robs, right? the last thing to do yeah in his good hands okay well for john roderick and anna pranica i've been ben harrison to the victor go the spoiler alerts friendly fire is a maximum fun podcast hosted by adam pranica ben harrison and john roderick the show is produced by me rob schulte our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music, and our podcast art is by Nick Dittmer. Kicking back by the fire with a bottle of eggnog? Why not add some classic friendly fire to that mixture? Last year around this time, your hosts reviewed Das Boat from 1981, a film about a German sub on patrol in the Atlantic during World War II and it was directed by Wolfgang Peterson. Feel like supporting our show? We'll head to MaximumFun.org join, and for as little as $5 a month, you'll gain access to our bonus pork chop feed and all the bonus content from Maximum Fun. Don't forget, you can now follow us on Twitter and Instagram under the handles FriendlyFireRSS. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week with another episode of Friendly Fire.
MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.